0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 87. Psalm 87. And this is a Song of Zion. Psalm 87. The psalm has a title, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. This is God's word. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those know me I mention Rahab and Babylon behold Philistia and Tyre with Cush this one was born there they say and of Zion it shall be said this one and that one were born in her for the most high himself will establish her the Lord records as he registers the peoples this one was born there singers and dancers alike say all my springs are in you amen thanks be to god for his word let's pray lord bless us richly now as we come to your word to consider your love for zion work in us that same love lord god delight us in your presence and in your people Bless us with words that are faithful, Lord God, and represent you well. And may you sow those seeds in our heart to the glory of your great name. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in a few short weeks, we plant, or we plan to plant, Zion Presbyterian Church. As we come to the end of Exodus, Pastor Rock and I discussed what to preach the next few weeks. And we thought we'd focus on the concept of Zion. Zion. Who and what in Scripture is Zion? Now, the name Zion appears in Scripture over 160 times. It's a fairly common name in that respect. As we search through Scripture, we see that Zion is the name for Jerusalem. It's the name for the Temple Mount, where God put his dwelling amongst his people. And yet, as we search more, we see that Zion is very closely associated with the people of Zion also. So much so that we can say that Zion in Scripture is both a place and a people. It is the people of God. It is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the sermon title is this, The Lord Loves the Gates of Zion. It's taken straight out of verse 2, The Lord Loves the Gates of Zion. And to say that, that God indeed does love the gates of Zion, is to say that God loves the people of Zion. God loves his people. God loves the church. He loves his sanctuaries. He loves his dwelling place of God with his people. And talk of Zion and God's relationship to Zion should be to us a source of profound encouragement, a source of profound comfort, a source of profound assurance that the church which belongs to God, he establishes it, he founded it, will never fail. The church will never perish. That should be the overwhelming thing that we take away from this psalm tonight. The church belongs to God. He is with her, and he is for her, and he loves her. And it naturally raises the question in our own mind, do we think of Zion, the church of God, in the way that God thinks of his church? And the psalm, is really, the psalm really comes to us in three parts. There's the first three verses where we can see that Zion is a place loved by God. Zion is a place loved by God. The next section of the psalm is verses 4 to 6, where we can see that Zion is a place filled with the nations. Filled with nations. And then verse 7 stands alone, but related, of course, where we see Zion is a place filled with worship. Filled with worship. It's a place loved by God, it's a place filled with the nations, and it's a place filled with worship. Firstly, Zion is a place loved by God. We've already said who or what Zion is. It's Jerusalem, it's the Temple Mount, it's the dwelling place of God, it is the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we first come across Zion in Scripture. The term Zion, I think... In 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 7, where we read this, David took the stronghold Zion, which he made the city of David. David conquered Zion and made it his city. That is to say, Zion in the earliest of days has been the royal city, the city of the king, the seat of kings from that time forward. Not just that, it's the capital city. And the city... The physical city and the people, as we work our way through scripture, become indistinguishable. The people and the city become indistinguishable. Importantly, Zion is the place where the temple is made. God's peculiar dwelling place with his people. And thus, Zion, Jerusalem, becomes a city of peculiar blessing, of God dwelling in the midst of the city in his temple that permanent structure uh, where Jerusalem becomes the center for worship the center for pilgrimage the center for sacrifice yes Jerusalem had a peculiar blessing placed upon it by the Lord it became glorious In fact, one of the other psalms, Psalm 68, points out how the glorious mountains of Bashan and and, and that kingdom, a a Gentile kingdom, would look upon Mount Zion with envy at its great glory because God was in its midst. But we have to say it's not principally David who founded or conquered Zion. Verse 1 tells us of our psalm, who founded Zion. We read this, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Rightly, in one of our psalms, we sing God's own city. God's own city. This is God's city. Uh, This is God's mount. This is God's dwelling place. The place that he founded, we read there in verse 5 also, for the Most High himself will establish her founded by god established by the most high he set his dwelling place in the midst of zion this is really important we've seen through exodus we saw this morning the dwelling place of god with men it's one of the fundamental planks of christianity god dwelling in the midst of his people god dwelt in the midst of zion that's to say today this is a Zion. God dwells in the midst of his church. He has founded his church, really very important. He has founded his church. Jesus Christ, as we confessed, is head over this church. The church, then, is the project and work, peculiarly, of the Most High God. The church is the project Peculiarly so of the most my God. Yes, we have duties. Yes, we have responsibilities. Yes, we have delights and even sorrows, but we have to acknowledge from verse 1 here that God founded Zion. It is His peculiar work. He has a vital interest in the work that is the church. Uh, he works in it. It is His flock. It is His people. It is His church we read in acts 20 verse 28 when uh, when the disciples paul is sorry paul is uh, exhorting the elders of the church there he says pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of god which he obtained with his own blood god obtained the church with his own blood that is to say, God founded this city. He established this city. He redeemed the inhabitants of this city with the blood of his son. And that immediately tells us something about the esteem that God has for the church. How does God esteem the church? We see there in verse 2 the Lord loves the gates of Zion. The Lord loves The gates of Zion. We need to think on that, don't we? God loves this church. God loves this church. He loves Zion Presbyterian Church also, though it has yet to meet. Of course, He does. How could He not? He founded the church, He establishes the church, He gave His Son's blood for the church, He redeemed the church. He loves the church so much he sent his son for the church and the investment of God that God has in the church ensures that the church shall never perish or fail. I'm not talking about individual churches they may come and they may go but the church as an entity zion the people of god god's investment in it his founding his establishing his redeeming assures us that the church will never fail the church will never perish we sing words to this effect do we not that the church is rent asunder by schism by heresy depressed Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, the church will never fail. Because none of those things are greater than the Almighty God. The Most High Himself, verse 5, will establish her. Zion, the holy city, the church, God loves her. God loves His church. And loves her in a staggering way. Verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. What does that mean? Surely it doesn't mean that God loves his people in Jerusalem more than he loves his people in, in Dan or in Bethel or anywhere else. Of course not. But there is a reality here. And there is most certainly a distinction. God did not put his temple or his presence in Dan or in Bethel. He put it in Jerusalem. He chose to be there. He commanded his temple upon which he descended in cloud and glory in Jerusalem. He made Jerusalem, Zion, distinct from all the other dwelling places of Jacob. We need to understand, friends, that there is a trajectory to this teaching. God's promise, as we saw this morning, has always been to dwell in the midst of his people. And to dwell in a most intimate fashion. As he dwelt with Adam in the garden before the fall, so too one day would he dwell again with his people in perfect eternal glory. And God promised such to Abraham that God would be his God and he would be his people. And yet, friend, it's in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ that we see this principle of God's dwelling place take new heights. God took flesh and dwelt among us. John says we've seen him, we've handled him, we've heard him. They ate with him, they wept with him. God, in the midst of his people, loving his people so much, Think on this, that the creator would take the form of his creation. It's mind-blowing how much God loves his church. But that's not the ultimate trajectory. The first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, of this dwelling place of God with man, this Zion concept. The ultimate trajectory is, of course, the new heavens and the new earth where we read of God dwelling in the midst of his people, where he will be our God and we will be his people. And we read then that there will be no longer any need for church buildings or temples or tabernacles. Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Two things associated with the glory and presence of God, the temple and light. Light, the glory of God seen in light. There will be no need for the sun and moon in the new heavens and the new earth because God will be so present in the midst of his people that his own glory will radiate across the whole earth. No need for a meeting place, church or chapel or temple. Why? Because God himself is the temple. And the lamb is the temple. Those things are for the age of types and shadows. And the former things have passed away. What is the city here in Revelation 21? It's the new Jerusalem founded on Mount Zion. It's the church. God dwelling in the midst of his church. Revelation 22 verse 4 says this. They, that is the church, they will see his face. Have you ever pondered that? Get to heaven. Well, get to the new earth, actually, and you'll see the face of Jesus. That's how intimate his dwelling will be in the midst of Zion. Eternally, physically, and spiritually perfected in the presence of the Lamb. And friends, we have that presence now, here, spiritually between these four walls so to speak really within these people it's not the four walls that make the church it's the people and God's presence with the people consider that God so loves his people he gives himself to his people he shares with us his holiness he shares with us his righteousness he gives us eternal life This is remarkable. This is what God thinks of his church. Consequently, there is great praise for Zion. Great praise for the city of God. Verse 3, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. There is praise to Zion. Not as an object of worship, but praise to God because of the glory that is God's people. The wonder that is God's people. Glorious things of you are spoken zion city of our god friends there's a pretty obvious applications to us arising out of these first three verses consider this we're going to plant zion lord willing three sundays from now those of you who remain at shiloh you'll turn up on august the 6th and some of our friends will be gone and there's going to be a lot of open seats And we'll be tempted to think, what in the world have we done? Where's everyone gone? And maybe in the next year we might lose some people. And we'll be thinking, did we make the right decision to plant Zion? Friends, we must resist such unbelieving thoughts. If it was left up to us, we might well think that way. But this is not our church. It's the church of God. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The text tells us he is founding his church. He is establishing his church. It's not up to us. We have our duties. We have our responsibilities. But the church is God's work. The church is God's delight. The church is God's handiwork. The end of which is the eternal dwelling place of the Christian with God in heaven. In other words, friends, no matter what happens to us at Shiloh, no matter what happens to Zion, the church has no end. It's an eternal being, an eternal reality. We must have the most, the utmost confidence in God, in his church even, as he works in it. Utmost confidence in the work of the Spirit in us and the utmost confidence in the work of the head of this church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's God's work, not ours. God's project, not ours. God's love, not principally ours. But we also ought to ask ourselves the question by means of application do we share this view of the church with God? Do we share this view of the church? Do we love the church? Do we say glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of God? Members of this church, not any other church, for all its faults, and there are many, can we say we love the gates of Shiloh? Or we love the gates of Zion, as it will be for some of you in three weeks. Is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ Right at the top, top two or three priorities in your life. It, it's got to be right up there because it is for God. You know, the church will ultimately serve his glory. That's a greater priority. But it, it's got to be in the top two or three priorities in life, friends. Or is the church an optional extra? Is it nice, but not necessary? The Lord loves the gates of Zion. Zion is a place loved by God. But it's also a place that he will fill, secondly, he will fill with the nations, verses 4 to 6. He will fill Zion with the nations. Uh, and we read this in verse 4. Among those who know me, God, I mention Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. Sometimes I like to turn to Luther's commentaries because you know he's going to give you a real humdinger of a quote. He's going to really hit you hard with, with something good. That is unless he gets it totally wrong, like he does in this verse here. Uh, for Luther, Rahab is the country of Italy and Babylon is Rome. Uh, but Luther says this, if I can quote him, he says, but if this, my exegesis said, if, if this does not please you and you prefer to take it as applying to all the nations, do so in the Lord's name. So in the Lord's name, I differ with Luther on this. Consider what God says here. Among those who know me, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Among those who know me. This is not just some narrow, ethnically centered on Jews knowledge of God. We have first of all Rahab, not Italy. Uh, Rahab is either a Gentile prostitute. Or it's the name that we see in scripture in the Psalms and in Isaiah for the country of Egypt. That's right, Egypt. It's named Rahab in scripture. What was Egypt? Egypt. The country that imprisoned God's people made them prisoners. Enemies of the state of Israel. Egypt. What about Babylon? Even worse, they're the ones who carried Israel off into exile. Uh, They were used by God to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. Who else do we have? We have Philistia, uh, historic enemies of Israel. We have Tyre. Uh, That port city on the the northeastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, rich, rich beyond measure, filled with pride, thinking that they needed no one else. Cush, Ethiopia, where people look very different and speak a very different language. Among those who know me, and it's just among those, not all those who know me, says the Lord, among some of them that know me. Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. Those who were historic enemies and strangers to the covenant of grace. God says they know me. They dwell within Zion. This one was born here. They say. Isn't that staggering? This one the one of Egypt, of Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush, and so on, this one was born here. Israel's great enemies, foreigners, Gentiles, strangers to the promises and covenants, this one was born here. And note that it doesn't say this one was grafted in, this one was converted, though we know that's true and it's biblically correct, but that's text says here it speaks with much more force about the right of these people to be found in zion this one was born here they have a birthright in zion verse 5 and of zion it shall be said this one and that one were born in her the nations born in zion by birth they belong to the people of God that's staggering language and note the repetition of the language at the end of verse 4 then in verse 5 then 6 this one was born here they say verse 4 verse 5 this one and that one were born in her verse 6 this one was born here this is amazing Three times, if there's a refrain in the psalm, it's this. This one was born here. This Gentile, this enemy, this stranger were born in Zion. It's teaching us, friends, that even the historic enemies of God's people have always been the target of God's mercy and grace. Three times, God tells us. The nations, the enemies, have been brought in. The dividing wall of separation between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. God's mercy is expansive. And as I said this morning, friends, lest we think any better of ourselves, lest we think any better of ourselves, we are enemies as well by birth, by nature. There's a reality to this now, isn't there? And yet there's a reality to come. Pastor Rockin often mentions in his preaching a phrase that that we we know as already and not yet. Already reality, but not yet fully fulfilled. Uh, It's speaking of eternal realities, new heavens and new earth, eternal realities which somehow intrude back now into time. So that we enjoy those realities now in part, but we don't yet fully enter into them gloriously. And we've seen it, have we not? We've seen this reality. We've seen the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ go into the four corners of this world to call people from every nation, tribe, and tongue into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Enemies have been made family members and strangers have been made friends through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin says this it is therefore said that those who are formerly deadly enemies or entire strangers shall not only become familiar friends but shall also be engrafted into one body that they may be accounted citizens of Jerusalem by birth it says this one was born there. It says more than that. Verse six, the Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. God is the divine registrar of new births in the kingdom of heaven. He says this Babylonian, this Ethiopian, this Welshman, was born here. Look on that, friends. This image of God as the divine registrar of births. That's what it says. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. The names of the elect throughout all ages from every corner of the earth recorded in heaven by the very hand of God. Isn't that staggering? In the birth registry of heaven, the supernatural birth registry of heaven, we also know it's the Lamb's Book of Life, names of the elect throughout all ages written by the very hand of God himself. Do we seriously think that there is anything that can separate us from eternity with God, once God has written our names in the Lamb's book of life. Do we think that when God records and registers his people, that there is anything in this life or death itself that can stop the fulfillment of this reality of us entering our rest? Oh friends, this gives us the greatest assurance we could possibly have. And we know how this happens, by God sending his son, that the Lord Jesus might live a life we could not live and die a death we could not die. Thus we're made righteous, thus we're acquitted of sins. We're made right before God. This is how he writes our names in the book of life. Oh friends, there's great comfort, great strength, great assurance. Today could be your last day of life. Tomorrow, you could wake up to the most terrifying and horrifying providence that you've ever faced in your entire life. What's gonna keep you through it? It's that your name has been inscribed by God. He's taken a pen with a nib of, of diamond and inscribed it on the heavenly roll. And there is none who can erase that name god's commitment to you is greater than your commitment to yourself god's commitment to the church is greater than the church's commitment to god we also have to say that god's commitment to the gospel venture is exceedingly great yes greater than everything because the gospel venture brings about this goal of the nations coming in We see here God's commitment to the Great Commission, that though he's put a responsibility in the hands of his people, he will anyway, whether we act or not, he will bring a people under himself, a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. His plan of salvation will go forth. It will be victorious. Those he has said he will save, he will save, and he will bring them under himself These are realities, incontestable realities. And friends, that must dictate our commitment to the church. It must dictate our commitment to God. And it must dictate our commitment to the Great Commission also. Because God has said he will do it. And he's also ordained the means by which he shall do it. He has said we are to go into all the world baptizing and making disciples, teaching them all that the Lord has commanded. We are to do that. And we're not just to do it by sending Zion out to do it for us. We at Shiloh must be intimately involved in that. Will we live in obedience to God's command and will we live up to God's commitment to the great commission to reach the nations because Zion is a place filled with the nations. But God has done this not just to create a saved community, not even just a saved and international community. He's done all this to create a worshiping community, verse 7. A worshiping community. Zion is a place filled with worship. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Pretty obscure stuff, but it's about worship, trust me. One writer says, here in verse 7 is the response to the prospects of verses four to six, and to the realities already enjoyed of verses one to three. Here's the response. The response to everything that has been said about Zion, it's filled with joyful, energetic, exuberant worship. Singers and dancers alike. We see here the joy and the exuberance. Of the citizens of Zion. The singers and dancers represent joyful old covenant worship. Calvin again says, So great will be the ground for rejoicing that the praises of God will resound in Zion continually with the energy of the living voice as well as with musical instruments. That's the vision. That's the city God has founded. That's the redeemed people being and doing what they are, made to be worshipers, worshiping with great joy, devoted to the act of worship, delighted with the act of worship, enraptured with the act of worship. And they have a confession to make as well. All my springs are in you. What in the world does that mean? Well, the commentators again differ. It's somewhat obscure, but I think as we read this text in light of other psalms, we begin to understand what's being said. In the psalm, springs of water, uh, while they can be a threat of danger, they are also used as a source of life. A source of life. The worshippers are confessing their source of life their source of blessing, their source of being comes from within Zion. All my springs are in you. All their life comes from within Zion. And we see this spring and this water and this stream imagery back in Psalm 46, and I think it speaks precisely to this issue. Psalm 46, verse four, speaking of the Holy Spirit, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when mornings, when morning dawns. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's talking about the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit. Another way of saying this is Paul would say, In him we live and move and have our being. That's how foundational our relationship to God is. And that's how foundational the material of our worship ought to be. When we come into God's house, we ought to have this visceral sensation. In him I live and move and have my being Without him, without God, I can do nothing. Without God, I am nothing. And surely that energizes our worship, our delight in God. We're confessing our utter dependence upon God. And we're rejoicing that in him all our needs are met. That the springs of our life are found where? In the house of God amidst God's people, where God is dwelling himself. This is why we say, friends, worship is so very important for the Christian. Sometimes we know we do it by duty. We all have to do that. But as we do duty by faith, and as we keep being faithful in that duty, Does not worship become more of a delight and a joy? The fellowship of seeing each other's faces, the joy of receiving the word, the joy of singing God's praises together and God pouring out his blessing upon us. Even as we worship him, he blesses us. There's no other place like the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other place like it. Is this your testimony, friends? Is this Zion, Shiloh, Presbyterian Church? Will Zion, Presbyterian Church, be your Zion, your true Zion, your joy and delight? Is it your confession, friends, that your springs of life come from your relationship with Jesus Christ through the church? Friends, I urge you, think well of the church of Christ. There's plenty of reasons to think poorly of it, but I want to say there's many, many, many more reasons to think well of it. Many more reasons. Moreover, friends, as we think on this psalm, ask yourself this question, is my confidence in Christ and his church, or is my confidence in myself Friends, going to Zion, your confidence is not in that Zion is getting off to a really great start with good numbers, great pastor, good elders, wonderful deacon, 65 wonderful people or so going to worship together. What a great start, humanly speaking. That's not your confidence. Shiloh members, will you lose confidence when we see the empty seats? And when our hearts break a little bit at the prospect of not seeing our friends every week, losing a quarter of our church, starting with 65 members, is neither here nor there. Because these two churches belong to Christ. God founds them. They're established by the mighty one. Scripture says it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. That's how we'll all prosper. And both Zion and Shiloh will be just fine, more than just fine. The call from Psalm 87, dear friends, is to see the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as God sees the church. It is to love the church as God loves the church, to be committed to the Great Commission as God is committed to the Great Commission. It is to be a worshiper as we've been called to be worshipers. May God grant us a great love for Zion. Let's pray. We do bless and magnify your name. Oh, there is no God like you. You are wonderful in all your ways, mighty God. Lord Christ, you are head and king of this church. And we praise you and we honor you. Give us delight in you, even as you delight in us. Have mercy upon us, we pray. Bless us as we go forward in these coming weeks. Encourage, strengthen our hearts. Bless us, Father, that we might delight in doing your good work. We praise you and we honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.